0: Welcome to ADHD flourishing about living awesomely with autism and ADHD. You deserve recognition for both the challenges and the superpowers of this unique neurotype. Let's celebrate wisdom and support from real life stories and talk strategies to manage the difficulties of day-to-day life so we can move beyond that to thriving and building a sustainable and awesome life. If you want to be here, you are accepted here and you belong. I'm your Audie HD host, Mattia Murray. Let's do this. Welcome. This episode will be as succinct an overview as possible of several large overlapping topics I've been thinking about. Money, the ethics around having a small business, and neurodivergent folks surviving capitalism. And the reason I'm particularly passionate about this topic is that a lot of neurodivergent and disabled people start small businesses out of necessity. It's often a better option than a traditional workplace, but for me and many of my friends and colleagues, we have, especially lately, a lot of guilt and theorizing about how we can be a part of this system that is hurting so many. Ultimately, one of my larger points is that as long as we're not exploiting others for profit, making money through some kind of exchange of goods or services seems like an ethical enough way to survive capitalism. That's where my brain's at right now, at least. Zooming way back to my first entrepreneurial venture, I learned how to crochet when I was six years old. I would crochet these flat circles, stitch them together, and then crochet a shoulder strap. So I created my own pattern basically for a little coin purse. And then not long after that, I would sell them to old ladies in the park, usually for a dollar or two. And then I started teaching piano lessons when I was 11 to other kids. And I think I started at $4 for a 20 minute lesson, which is very cute. Although I'll also point out that means that per hour, that was still more the minimum wage. I usually had two to five students a week, so I was making up to $20 a week that way when I was 11, 12, 13. Very slowly raised my prices. And that felt really good at the time. And I share this because As an entrepreneurial kid, I had absolutely zero guilt or shame around selling in part because I literally needed that money to buy food, but the guilt and shame developed later through socialization and learning more about the larger systems around me. And then it's also interesting to me that my parents never encouraged my entrepreneurial drive at all, though I'm pretty sure they would have if I'd been assigned male at birth. So back to the present, some months ago, I was really having All these conflicting thoughts and feelings about making money and being in business. And in part because of some unethical and kind of gross things I was seeing in the coaching industry around me, just because I know a lot of coaches and I was seeing some stuff that I was like, oh, I really hate this language. So a handful of coach friends with some similar feelings gathered for a chat about money and it was super great. So we've just kept meeting and we've had these ongoing conversations that have been incredibly useful to me. That group of like-minded, mostly politically radical people who also have service-based businesses has really helped me think through the practical applications of my own values in real time. It also gave me emotional support for making some changes this year. For example, I gave out way more scholarships than my business can technically support. So I'm making a lot less money this year, but it also feels aligned with my values. And this is kind of the broader concern that I have seeing other disabled and neurodivergent and or otherwise marginalized people because of this guilt and because we're wanting to help people and, you know, giving away what we have as we can and just being that, you know, community-minded, wanting to help people, it's great and lovely. And also, if you don't have backup, like in my case, I have a nesting partner who makes more money. If you don't have that backup, then you know, if you are the sole provider for your family and you are having the same concern or guilt that I've been having, then it can really be harmful, I think, to not be able to survive capitalism, you know, through the current means that we have to do so. So that's really what I'm talking about today is kind of this difference between making money out of necessity as opposed to the feeling of never having enough and always pursuing more and growth at any cost, which is, you know, late stage toxic capitalism. I'm going to walk you through some of these larger points I've been thinking about. And as always, this is just a snapshot of where my brain is at the moment. I'm sure my ideas will continue to evolve and change. This is not prescriptive, as in you don't need to take on any of my ideas or actions. One of my intentions is to hopefully give some emotional relief to anyone who's feeling uncomfortable making money within the system because yes it is a problem but i also want us us meaning anybody who might be listening to this to survive late-stage capitalism and be part of building something better and not to be too dramatic but our lives literally can be at stake when it comes to healthcare and housing and especially if you have other identities that cause you to be discriminated against in housing and healthcare and work, you know, there's just so much going on around us that is essentially conspiring for us to die. I mean, it's, it's really frustrating and I am losing friends and there's a huge part of me that of course just wants to like flip the table and kind of start over, but I also recognize very much so that whenever that happens, whenever there's something along the lines of a revolution, something very significant, fast change, it hurts the most marginalized people first. So again, a lot of what I think about is how can I help people like me survive this next stretch and, you know, hopefully build a life for themselves in the meantime that makes them not be miserable day to day. So I know that's a big topic and a big ask, but that's kind of where my thoughts are coming from. Just that's my foundational point where my brain was at when I really started to dig into these questions. So my first big point is, as I said at the beginning, neurodivergent and disabled folks often start businesses out of necessity. Many small businesses are also started by women with caretaking duties. So women who are taking care of children and or elderly family members. And so they need something flexible and that allows them to work from home a lot of the people starting small businesses in the US have one or more financially marginalized identities meaning they have been either directly discriminated against when it comes to pay and or they're likely to receive less salary over a lifetime often by a very significant amount i was intending to look up some of these statistics but i didn't have time to research to my own standards so you can go look these up but Over time, I've seen numbers on some of the following. One was contrasting how much money white men borrow to start businesses versus everybody else, how little money most women-owned businesses make in a year, stats on how many small businesses last more than a handful of years, et cetera. There's these sort of broad numbers out there that basically a lot of small businesses really struggle And overall, white men are a lot more likely to receive significant external support for their business and have it make more money, and especially more money for them personally. And this brings me to my next big point, which is capitalism is not just the exchange of goods or the use of money. Money is not what makes capitalism. Capitalism is about the existence of an upper class that receives the profits of the excess labor of everybody below them. And there was a time mid 20th century when business owners in the U.S. were socially expected to provide pensions for their workers, to be a part of their community, to give back. And the switch to short term profits above all else was a huge shift. And that's in part what's absolutely destroying the world. So even if you are generally anti-capitalist, as I am, there is even this recent, relatively recent as in a matter of decades or, you know, a generation or two change where this focus on short-term profits above all else and just extracting as much excess labor as possible, the the profit from that, that is what is so extra terrible, right? And that's what I mean when I say late-stage capitalism is what's happening right now in this totally unsustainable way. And one thing I've heard people be excited about and that I'm excited about is the development of new technology, right? We're talking about this around climate change. And You know, AI does have some potential to do cool stuff. However, it's not going to help us, the regular people, work less or have a better life because the system is designed to extract all of the profit from our excess labor. So the development of new technology will automatically siphon that profit to the upper class as long as we have this current system of short-term profits above all else. And this will continue unless the lower classes and the disempowered, i.e. the vast majority of us, rise up in some form and at the very least create unions and drive regulatory processes. As two examples of how this is not happening right now, many states are trying to make it so children can start working again. They're trying to soften child labor laws. And as this is happening, children are dying uh, this is a headline, 13 worker killed in industrial accident as states try to loosen child labor laws. Uh, there was a 16-year-old boy in Mississippi, and then two other minors had died on the job in Missouri and Wisconsin in the weeks before that. Also, Texas got rid of mandatory water breaks, and several older workers died within weeks of that because of dehydration on the job. Dying is obviously the most extreme example. We're not talking about wage theft and all of the other terrible things that happen at work, but... The fact that these people who are dying because of this lack of regulation, that that's just considered acceptable within the larger system. That's the problem, right? Our literal lives don't matter. We're seen as fodder. We are seen as interchangeable, just bodies to do work. So this current labor movement right now with unionizing is absolutely crucial. The rich do not give up money or power without pressure. And even the ultra rich who are donating are typically giving up just a tiny fraction of their money and none of their power, because this is not just about money. It's about the conjunction between money and power. And yes, this is a huge topic. If you're interested in it, one podcast I've been listening to lately that I really like is Moneyless Society. And then to come back to the small business side of things, we've been talking about kind of the big picture, but to come back to sort of the, you know, what I'm doing day to day, By adulthood, I started to feel guilt about charging money, making money, especially in my work, either directly helping people or as an artist, because those are both very undervalued in society. And a lot of people think you should be doing those things for free. But at this point, based on a lot of what I've shared with you today, I feel less guilt about the direct exchange of services or products for money, like my time for someone's money. That feels So much better to me than this idea of creating a business that scales and profits off of the excess labor of others. If I ever have an employee, which I have not, I have contracted people a little bit, but if I ever have an actual employee, it is my intention to pay them really, really, really well, not to be extracting additional labor from them beyond what we've mutually consented to. And I know there's no way to eliminate that power dynamic entirely. But again, in this big picture, we have capacity, certainly in the U.S., for something like universal basic income to provide everyone a minimum of $100,000 a year. Universal basic income or the social supports don't have to be at poverty level. Disability doesn't have to be at poverty level. We have the food. We have the housing. We have the cash. Honestly, to have everyone have what they need throughout the entire world right now. The resources are here for everybody to have enough, but they are being hoarded by a really small number of people who literally don't care if we die. And on the small business side, one way I've heard my friends and colleagues talk about money sometimes that has always rubbed me the wrong way is this idea that if we earn enough, we can save the world. We meaning the good ones who are making a bunch of money, I guess. And I fundamentally disagree with this idea for several reasons. First, I've seen money change people way too many times. I think once you get that taste of not just the money, but the power associated with it, it becomes a lot harder to empathize with people for whom $20 is the difference between eating and taking meds and not. Second, the main way to make that kind of big money, especially quickly, is by exploiting people for profit or exploiting land for profit, I guess, if you are a terrible landlord person. (laughs) And that is absolutely being part of the problem and not the solution. And then third... When the rich do donate their money, they're usually donating to 501c3 nonprofits because of the tax benefits. But the nonprofit industrial complex is just as problematic in many ways as the for profit world. So just donating excess money you make is not changing the system if you're just feeding right back into the same system. If I have any kind of conclusion at this time, it's that while money may well be the problem, I'm reading the Moneyless Society book right now. In the context of trying to survive capitalism, simple exchange of goods and services for money is not the same as exploiting and maximizing the excess labor of others for profit. Most of us with small businesses are making well under $100,000 a year. For full transparency, I've only made over 100K one year in my life, and I will make less than that this year because of how I've deprioritized making money and given a lot of scholarships because I wanted to, and the need was there. My hope for this episode is that if you have a small business or if you're just employed or if you're on disability, any way that you are getting money out of this current system that we're in, you can start to put aside some of the shame and guilt around charging money, receiving money, having your needs taken care of in whatever way they're being taken care of. Because if we, with all of our identities, can support ourselves through self-employment or small business, or again, any other way that that money is coming to us, if we can have that autonomy, if we can create accessible spaces, and if we can be happy with enough, to me, that's about as ethically as I can survive capitalism right now. And the being happy with enough part deserves its own point because a lot of what's helping me right now is knowing that once my needs are met, I really do have capacity to give. And that's not just giving money, that's giving time, expertise, co-regulation, and having capacity to really be present as a part of community. This current round of self-employment for me in the past few years has been incredibly nourishing and healing because of the self-kindness I bring to myself around it, and because I'm explicitly building my business in a way that works for my brain. And I'm going to stop myself here because this is a huge topic, and I'm super curious to hear your thoughts and questions. You can share those over in the transcript doc linked below. There may be a delay getting the transcript up for individual episodes, but hopefully they'll be there within a few days of posting. Or if you want to dig more into this conversation, one place you can do that is in the Audi HD Creatives and Entrepreneurs Facebook group. It's a space I created because I wasn't finding another one like it. And you're welcome to be there if you're autistic, ADHD, both, or just generally neurodivergent and not quite sure where you fit in. If you want to be there, you're welcome. It's a pretty chill space and some of my good friends are in there and We don't have any huge goals or anything. It's just a space to ask questions. And I think the conversation in there is really great. So I'll link that in the show notes as well. And I'll talk to you next week. Thank you. I hope that sparked some ideas or possibilities for your own adventure. If you'd like to connect, I invite you to join my group of rebels in the free Facebook group, HD Entrepreneurs and Creatives, an affirming space for autistic and ADHD creators. You're welcome to share offers, ask for feedback, and seek new collaborators. It's a space I was looking for and not finding, so I made it myself. And it's fine to join if you're still questioning your neurotype or if you're not actively entrepreneurial right now. That link is in the show notes, or you can search Audie HD Entrepreneurs on Facebook.